Amen. Well, guys, welcome to The Grove. My name is Caleb Brazier, and uh, I am one of the pastors here at The Grove, and we are rounding out our sermon series um, entitled Missional Profiles. Um, We spent five weeks at the beginning of this year just walking slowly through the Great Commission, Matthew 28, this mission that Jesus has given every single one of his disciples. And we saw, kind of summing up in the three words, what Jesus has called us to go and do is he's called us to go, make, and teach, to live missionally, to make and baptize new believers of all nations, and then to teach them to observe and obey everything that Jesus has commanded them. And then after January then, we began a nine-week series known as Missional Profiles, where we're then looking at different individuals in the Bible who did one of those three things, either obeying God's call to go to make or to teach. And so we've been looking all around the scriptures, and we're getting close. We'll finish up next week looking at Abraham uh, for Easter Sunday on Sunday. But today we look at kind of the final example of uh, someone who obeyed God's call to go and make. We'll be looking at Peter and John in the book of Acts. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and flip there. We'll read there in just a second. We'll be in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Um, is where we'll be. We'll be honing in on one phrase in particular. We'll get to that in just a second. So again, we've, we're looking at this great commission, trying to hold this up in front of us. Here's what Jesus has told us to go and do. But if you've noticed, throughout, honestly, throughout January and then even through these missional profiles, there's a sentence in the great commission that we haven't really honed in on. They're in that very end of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 28, This is what Jesus tells his disciples, and then by extension tells every single one of us. He tells his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And that's what we've been focusing so far this year. But that isn't the end of the Great Commission. If you've grown up in the church or you're familiar with the Bible, you know that there's something else there. The final, Jesus, the final sentence that Jesus gives is this. He tells his disciples, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, guys, here's your mission. And also, remember this, I will be with you as you go and follow that commission. As you go then into this world with this mission, doing my work, I will be with you. So what's odd about that? Right, well, what's odd is that 40 days later, Jesus left them. 40 days later, Jesus ascended into heaven. So what happened there? Jesus saying, hey, I'm going to be with you. He's going along. 40 days later, looks at his calendar. He's like, oh, shoot, I double booked. Like, I've, I've got to go, but just continue to go. Make disciples. What did Jesus mean when he says that I'll be with you always? We see what Jesus means as we read the rest of the New Testament is that Jesus means I will be with you because I am ascending, but I'm going to send my spirit who is so connected to me that he is, in fact, my spirit, the Holy Spirit, not a different entity, not a different God, but a part of the Godhead, part of the Trinity. My spirit will then go, fall on every single one of you to dwell within you to help you as you go along in this commission because Jesus knows we can't do it on our own. We can't walk in our own power doing what Jesus has called us to do, whether it be missions, whether it be evangelism, whether it be teaching, or even if it's just living our own life, fighting sin. We can't do it on our own. So Jesus gives us the source of our power in this promise at the end of the Great Commission. Remember, as you go, I am with you always. Friends, we cannot accomplish the ministry of Jesus if we do not depend on the spirit of Jesus. Period. Everything that we've talked about this year, wanting to live missionally, wanting to see people come to know him, wanting to see people raised up and taught about everything that Jesus has called us, we cannot accomplish the ministry of Jesus if we do not depend on the spirit of Jesus. In order to live for him, we must be filled with him. In order to live for him, we must be filled with him. And so I don't know about you, but I get kind of towards the end of this sermon series, and there's a part of me that starts to get excited and antsy and eager, and I just go, man, I want my life to mean something. 
Right? This year has challenged me and my life and my heart and how I live and what it is I'm striving for. And I'm going, God, I want my life to mean something beyond just a good retirement plan, beyond just people liking me, beyond just a quote-unquote successful ministry or church, whatever that means. Beyond all of that, God, I want to live for you. I want to be unabandoned, abandoned, uninhibited, Whatever, I just want to live for you. You know what I mean. You know the groaning's too deep for, uh, for words, God. You know what I'm trying to say. I want to live for you. And there's a bit of me that walks in too, and I want to go, God, I want to be a threat for your kingdom to the enemy. That's what I want to be. I want to be a threat. When I wake up, I want the enemy's alarms to raise and go, okay, we've got to get on defense because this one's on the loose again. He's awakened from his unconscious state. It'll just take him about an hour and a half till he gets to, to a better point. But still, he's awake now. We've got to do something. And I want to be a threat. Right? Is that any of you wanting to live beyond just kind of an ordinary, normal, quote-unquote, kind of superficial Christian life? You want to live for the mission of God in a way that you can't do it on your own. Working through Christ in you to build his church, expanding his kingdom, seeing people come from death to life. That's what I want to be, and it's what I want for us as well as a church. And so as we look at Peter and John here in Acts 4, honestly, it kind of captures so much of this. In its entirety, kind of this um, uninhibited um, uh, response to the gospel, living missionally. So in Acts 3, we got to get a little bit of context before we read and jump into Acts 4. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John were just going to pray. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They then are going to pray. In chapter 3, verse 1, now Peter and John were going to the temple for the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. As they're going, all of a sudden they come across this man who was lame been lame for decades. He'd always come to the gate, ask for money, and then they have this exchange with this guy. And so Peter and John are going. They're not going to minister to this man. They're just going to the temple to pray. And as they go, they then encounter this ministry with this man. And as they're talking, the, the man wants money, and, and Peter goes, hey, man, I've got something better to give to you. In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And the guy gets up, and he walks now for the first time in, in his life. And he begins to praise Jesus. And we see then in verse 8, that is his response. He jumps up and starts to walk, and he enters the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. So Peter and John go, and Peter and John make. Uh, here's a man who didn't praise God, and now he is. They were going, they were making, and then Peter then launches into a sermon because people that were around begin to say, hey, we see him every day, and he can't walk, and now he's walking. So a crowd begins to gather and then in verses 12 to 26, Peter then launches into another incredible sermon. And he teaches. Because Peter knows it's not just about doing powerful signs or doing good deeds. He knows what is needed is the proclamation of the gospel. So he points people back to Jesus. They're going, they're making, and they're teaching. And so there is this incredible stir that's happening in the temple and people are beginning then to believe, and it's catching the eye of the local religious Jerusalem authorities. And that gets us then to chapter 4. So we'll read verses 1 through 13 and then dive in. Chapter 4 then picks up. It says, While they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple police and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So you hear what's happening so far. Peter and John are preaching. The local authorities begin to recognize that they are annoyed. I love that. They're just like uh, 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 aggravated and annoyed that this is happening. So they take control of Peter and John, but they can't stop the message. Already 5,000 people have believed in a, in a moment. That's what we see here in the power and the fruit of this ministry immediately. So again, I see that. I'm like, oh, I want to see and experience that. So it continues then on into verse 5. Now the next day then, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. And they asked this question, By what power 
or in what name have you done this? So they gather Peter and John together. They hold them overnight. Now they bring them before this kind of tribunal, and they're questioning them, saying, how was it that you healed this man? What power or what name did you do this? And then look at the response of Peter in verse 8. Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that. And said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you today healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. And when they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. But what a powerful encounter. We see God here working in the early church, thousands being saved. Peter here standing boldly before persecution, preaching the exclusivity and the glory of Jesus. This is the same Peter, mind you, that less than just a few months earlier denied Jesus to a servant girl. He couldn't stand up to her. Like this little 12-year-old girl was like, hey, aren't you, don't you know Jesus? Like, no, 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 not me. Don't want to be associated with him. And now Peter, in the face of persecution, is boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus. So what has shifted? What has happened? Right? We see here in Acts 3 and 4, as we see, goodness, throughout the rest of the New Testament, we see the power of Jesus expressed. We see the gospel of Jesus explained. We see the name of Jesus exalted. We see the person of Jesus embraced, the life of Jesus experienced, the disciples of Jesus emboldened, and the mission of Jesus executed. This is what we see, and friends, I don't know about you, but that's what I long to see in my life. I don't want to just show up to church every now and then and check some boxes. I want to experience what Peter calls the source of life. I want to live like heaven is a reality. I want to live like hell is a reality. I want to live like Jesus really did die and really isn't dead. That he did come back from the grave. and That he now offers us that kind of power and has called us into a divine and eternal mission. That's how I want to live. I want to walk and live like we see in the book of Acts. So how do we get there? How do we experience it? I think the key phrase is to go back to verse 8. And it says this, Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. I think that's the key phrase in all of this. Because in your Bibles, the book of Acts, if you look, it's known as the book of Acts. Some of you may have a subheading that says Acts of the Apostles. I think that's a terrible name for the book. I think it's a terrible name for the book, not because I'm great at naming book chapters in the Bible. Just as I read the book of Acts, it's not Peter and John who do this. And interesting enough, it's not even necessarily the Holy Spirit who gets the credit here. If you go back and see what Peter says in verse 10, he says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of, of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. By him this man is standing before you healthy. So it's Jesus' ministry now through his spirit acting in and through the apostles that is working throughout the book of Acts and has continued throughout the entirety of the church and, and church history. And that's why Jesus makes the promise, hey, it's not going to be good preachers who build my church. It's not going to be good organizational leaders that build my church. Jesus says, I will build my church. How? Because his ministry continues through his spirit in his people. So this isn't the acts of the apostles. It's really the continuing acts of the ministry of Jesus. It's just the sequel to Jesus' ministry. That's what we have here in the book of Acts. And the way that this happened was that Peter was filled with that spirit to accomplish it. So again, being filled with the spirit is essential to accomplish the ministry and the mission that Jesus has called you to. And friends, make no mistake, he has called you. 
He doesn't just call varsity Christians. He says, hey, uh, everybody, if you follow me, here's what I have for you. Go and make disciples. If you've been saved by Jesus, you've been sent by Jesus. And if you've been saved by Jesus, also know that you have been empowered by Jesus, by his spirit dwelling in you. In order to live for him, we must be filled with him. So some of you may be going, I thought, aren't we a Baptist church? I didn't know this was a Pentecostal church I was walking into, being filled with the Spirit. What is happening? Some of you are like, wait, we're a Baptist church? I didn't even realize that. Um, But no, at the end of the day, we're not even necessarily concerned about labels or denominations. For us, we want to look at the Bible and say, God, how is it you've revealed yourself and how are we to live? We want to be bound by a structure or a system. We want to say, God, how have you revealed yourself? And I have found in some of my experience in the church, I don't know if you're like this, maybe, maybe you aren't, but it can sometimes feel as though the Holy Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. And then the Spirit is kind of downplayed, minimized. It's like, we don't know what to do with him. Um, for some, it's like it's the weird uncle that shows up at family parties sometimes. It's like, we don't really know what's going to happen, like, so we just won't talk about it. Maybe, maybe you've seen bad teaching. Maybe you've seen bad expressions of this teaching on the Spirit. And it's made you kind of pull back and go, I, I, I don't really know what to do with that, so we're just not going to. Let's just talk about Jesus. Well, friends, what I want to do today is see that if that is our response, and if we forget one of the triune uh, members of the Godhead, one of the persons of God, the Holy Spirit, then we will have forgotten and lost the power of any kind of ministry that God's called us to. And one of the things that we strive then to do is to do like Peter did, was to be filled with the Spirit. So maybe you're saying, well, Caleb, okay, but that was Acts. It's a particular moment in redemptive history. It's dangerous if we look at Acts as descriptive and not simply prescriptive. If you say that, I'm going, that's a, that's a great way to read and study your Bible. A lot of heresy can be found whenever we take the book of Acts and just try to rip it out and say, this is what God expects for us today. It was a unique moment in redemptive history, which we won't get into, but it's the reason why we can't just pluck a verse out of Acts and say, here's, this should, should be how the church works today. So maybe you're going, well, Caleb, that was just, this was right after Pentecost, man, like two chapters after Pentecost. The moment when the Spirit then came down like tongues of fire in Acts 2, it's not still for us today. And I would say, okay, I hear you. Fair enough. I'm glad that you read and study your Bible that way. But I would say read the rest of the New Testament. And when you get to the book of Ephesians, Paul's writing to an established church, a church that he saw planted and giving them instructions now of how to continue to live as a church. And his letter to that church is just like it would be a letter written to us. And this was Paul's instruction to the church in Ephesus in chapter 5, verse 18. He said, guys, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul's now out of the book of Acts. He's now planted firmly in just the life of a local church. And he commands them to be filled with the Spirit. And so this process of living and living and longing in such a way to be filled with the Spirit isn't just unique to this redemptive historical setting in Acts 4. Friends, it applies to us as a church, and I'm convinced is one of the things that holds us back in ministry is that we don't even have a category for this sometimes. And so to be filled with the Spirit. Now, this is what I want to hone in then on the rest of our time, that phrase, and really ask two questions. I want to ask what it isn't and what it is. That's, I guess that's, two, that's really question 1A and 1B. So three questions, if you will. So first, what it isn't and what it is to be filled with the Spirit. And then second, how do we be filled with the Spirit? What do we do to be filled with the Spirit? So those are our two and a half questions um, that I want us to ask this afternoon. So what it isn't and what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is where there's a lot of confusion in the church today and some just honestly awful teaching about what it means. There are these phrases of being baptized in the Spirit and being filled by the Spirit. And often the two just kind of get lapped over, like they're one and the same. It's language pulled from Scripture, uh, but people will say that baptism of the Spirit is is a sense in which when you're saved, you receive God's Spirit who dwells inside of you, but then later on there is a second blessing or a second baptism of the Spirit that you receive that's marked supernaturally by speaking in tongues. 
And that's available for every Christian. And it kind of creates these two tiers of Christians, kind of like JV Christians and then the upper varsity uh, Christians, the one who've experienced that second blessing or second baptism. So baptism is something that happens twice. There's this initial baptism, a deeper baptism of the Spirit. It's marked by the speaking of tongues. Again, going through the book of Acts, that's what's described. We, we see that happening in which people believed. And then later, the apostles prayed for them. They received then the gift of the Spirit, and they spoke in tongues. So people will say, hey, it happened here in Acts, therefore, this also should happen here in the church today. Well, goodness, there's a million problems with that. And again, part of it is it creates two different tiers of Christians, which we don't see anywhere. And secondly, the other way, again, I referenced this earlier, but it's the way in which we read the book of Acts. Around the turn of the century in New York, New York received um, plumbing, water, running water to be able to go to all the different boroughs in New York. And what they did, every time that water reached one of the boroughs, they had a ceremony for receiving then running water in that borough. But they didn't have a ceremony every single time someone in that borough turned on their water faucet and water came out. There was a ceremonial kind of sense in which, hey, this area has now received water, and then everyone inside of it, there wasn't an individual ceremony after that. Well, friends, it's similar in the book of Acts. We have here a moment in which God has been the God of Israel from the very beginning, making a covenant with his people. And what we see between this old and new covenant is there's this shift now where God is not simply the savior of Israel. He is the savior of the world. And it's going not just saying everyone come to Jerusalem. It's now the message of Acts 1.8 that power will come upon you and you will go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. You now go to all nations taking this gospel. And as it goes, there's going to be people going, how do we know this is of God? How do we know that he's behind this? And what we see throughout the book of Acts is every time the gospel reaches a new people, there is this ceremony that takes place where the apostles lay on their hands an authentication of the people who are with Jesus. And then a speaking of tongues is an authentication of God saying, yes, this is of me as well. And then the Holy Spirit is there and then passes through those people as well to be able to say, this is of God, is an authentication of the message. It's not needed every single individual time. It's a unique moment in redemptive history. And so for us, we don't need a second baptism. That's not needed. Baptism of the Spirit is a metaphor for our reception of the Holy Spirit at the moment of our conversion we are indwelt with and immersed by the Holy Spirit. This is Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. He says, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. That happens once. It doesn't happen over and over again. So what we see, just a few words that mark what it means to be baptized by the spirit, is that it is instantaneous. It doesn't happen gradually. It doesn't happen in steps. It happens once. It happens in a moment. For anyone who believes God's spirit then indwells that person to be able to empower them. We then become indwelt with his spirit. It's instantaneous. It's simultaneous with conversion. It happens at the same time. It is universal. It's meant for everyone. Every Christian then is baptized by the spirit and then enters into that body, into the church. Again, it's one of the other problems with kind of the sense in which every Christian should have a second baptism marked by the speaking of tongues. Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, not everyone's going to have that gift. That's not meant for everyone. But this baptism in which we are indwelt by the Spirit is universal. Fourth, it is unrepeatable. It doesn't happen again. It happens once. And then fifth, it's permanent. You don't lose it. It doesn't fade away to be brought back. There's a way Paul puts it in Ephesians 1. He says, In him also you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed. When were we sealed with the Holy Spirit? When you believe, instantaneous, in a moment for every Christian. You don't lose it. You are sealed and promised so that now God will hold you fast. And the work that he began in you, he will carry you on until you see it in completion in the day of the Lord. Philippians 1. So that's the baptism of the Spirit. And that's different from the filling of the Spirit. So what does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? We'll be filled by the Spirit as a continual and varying experience of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. It's continual, progressive. It varies in our awareness and experience of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It means to become more and more under the influence of the Holy Spirit, to be 
filled with him, affected by him, and controlled by him. This is why Paul uses this contrast in Ephesians 5. Did you hear it? He compares it to alcohol. He says, don't be drunk with too much wine. That's a sin. And in the context, he's comparing living in darkness and living in the light. So about living a holy life versus living and running after sin. And Paul says, don't be drunk with too much wine. He says, but be filled with the Spirit. That word filled literally means to be controlled, to be intoxicated, to be affected by, to be under the influence of, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he uses that image, so, it's so helpful to see it's a question of influence, control, and power. It's what it means to be filled by the Spirit. But alcohol affects and controls your entire body. When you have too much to drink, your whole body is affected. If they need to take a blood alcohol sample, they don't have to take it from around your mouth. They can take it at any point in your body because it's throughout your entire system. It affects your entire body. Your inhibitions are gone. There are things that you do that you normally wouldn't do. And Paul is saying that in similar ways, then you need to live underneath that kind of influence of the Spirit for, it to affect, for him to affect your entire body, your entire life. Notice the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. It's not the fruits of the Spirit like we can pick and choose. It's singular. The fruit of the Spirit manifests itself in a whole sense in our entire lives. We are completely affected then by the ministry of and the power of the Holy Spirit. Our inhibitions are removed. There are things we begin to do that we normally wouldn't do. Right? We've seen this with people who are drunk. People who you look at them and you can know almost instantly like you've had way too much to drink. Um, you are slurring your words, you're out there dancing in a way that you never have and shouldn't ever again. And we know that there are things that have been removed from that individual because of alcohol. Now, there are, the, the analogy does break down because that doesn't mean then to be filled with the Spirit means we just lose control. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, if there are people filled by the Spirit who are speaking in tongues and someone comes in who isn't a Christian, there's no one there to interpret, he says, hey, stop. There's an ability to be able to control. It's not like this complete loss of a sense. And so there's, again, a lot of horrible teaching on this. People talk about being drunk with Jesus, who walk around in worship services barking like a dog or holy laughter. I don't know if you've seen any of these. These aren't jokes. Uh, People are really running after this, pulling things like this in Ephesians 5. And that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that there is still control you have but it entirely affects you and does begin to remove some inhibitions. You begin to walk forward and do some things you typically wouldn't do. There's a different kind of boldness that you now have. There's one of the side effects we see, fruits that we see of being filled in the Spirit throughout the book of Acts, is boldness. Peter, what's Peter's difference? Why could he not stand up to a slave girl, a teenage girl, in the end of the Gospels, but now is standing before a tribunal threatened to be persecuted was well, because he's bold. He's now filled with the Spirit and going, hey, I have, there's a newfound courage I have that didn't come from me like learning some more true things or taking a new class or just going through a seminar on how to be more bold. He was filled with the Spirit. There was an external power that pushed him forward to do things he normally wouldn't do in his own. And this is why Paul contrasts these two things. And we see, in fact, not only did Peter not take some more classes or go get some more training, but being filled with the Spirit actually flew in contrast to that. Did you hear the leader's response at verse 13 in Acts 4? They looked at Peter and John and they said, hey, you guys are bold, but they also realized they were uneducated, untrained men. They were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. Peter and John weren't bold because they went away to the synagogue and took some rabbinical classes. In fact, the exact opposite. There was now this external power that was making itself known, and the people around were going, there's something different about them. They have been with Jesus. There was something external about them, and they were in that moment filled with the Spirit. That's why for us, Paul commands us as well to be filled with the Spirit. But that verb actually in Ephesians 5, don't be drunk on too much wine, be filled with the Spirit. I typically don't get down into Greek grammar and verbs, but this one's, I think, helpful because it's actually kind of this progressive present verb that says that we are to be being filled with the Spirit. 
as a progressive present verb that's saying this is not only a once kind of reality, this is something for you to continue to strive after, to be being filled, and it's meant for everyone. It's a plural verb. Paul says that every single person in the church in Ephesus and every single person in the church at the Grove should be being filled with the Spirit. John Stott put it this way, he said, the fullness of the Holy Spirit is emphatically not a privilege reserved for some, but a duty resting on all. This is meant for all of us. And the results, the fruit of being filled with the Spirit, what we see in the New Testament, generally we see these four things happen whenever people are filled with the Spirit. We see divine power. We see moral purity. We see bold proclamation. And we see authentic praise. Divine power. Bold proclamation moral purity, and authentic praise. Divine power, just Jesus sometimes showing up through his spirit in people's lives and just kind of flexing his authority that he has over everything. Whether it be through miracles or signs, whether it be through conversions, there are times in which just power is expressed. And friends, that continues today. There's no reason for us to expect then Jesus to not act that way anymore. But not only through divine power, but also moral purity. Again, in Ephesians 5, the result of being filled with the Spirit is a living a holy life. It's moral in nature. It's not living in darkness, but living in light. Bold proclamation. We see people filled with the Spirit and then proclaiming the name and the gospel of Jesus Christ boldly when typically they wouldn't. And we see authentic praise. Again, in Ephesians 5, there when Paul says, don't be drunk on too much wine, but be filled with the Spirit. He then goes in that very next verse and says that we then, an expression of that is to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. The filling of the Spirit then stirs something in our hearts to want to sing to God, to want to worship Him through song. It's one of the unique things about Christianity is that we are a singing religion. Uh, There's something about who God is and what he's done for us that stirs us in a way that makes us want to sing. And there's some dispute in Ephesians 5 whether we're supposed to sing from our heart out loud or to sing in our heart. Maybe if you're here and you don't have a very uh, great singing voice, you're insecure, you can follow then God's word and say you can sing in your heart loudly, uh, however it is you may want. But even then, if you sing as loud as you can, we welcome that because God knows. He doesn't look on the outside and whether we're in tune or not. He's looking in our hearts. So you know, sing as loud as you can. We welcome it all. But it does result in a song. It results in authentic praise. There's something in us that stirs as we're filled with the Spirit to worship him. So that's what being filled with the Spirit isn't and what it is. So now the kind of million-dollar question, how then, what do we do to be filled by the Spirit? How can I be filled with the Spirit? What do I need to do to be filled by the Spirit? And I, I think that's a relevant question. We had to do a good bit of legwork up to this point. But if you've, if you've kind of checked out or fallen asleep, just come back here for a moment. Because we kind of had to do some of that legwork to get to this point now. Because I think now this resonates and goes into every single one of our lives. How do we be filled with the Spirit to obey this command? I think it's relevant because I think that there are people here that want to see victory in your life over sin. Maybe you came in here today and there's just sin that has found a home in your life. Uh, theologians will call it besetting sin or indwelling sin, sin that just you feel like you can't get over it. You battle, you fight, and you just walk in another Sunday defeated. And you go, how am I supposed to deal with this? I, feel, I want to, but I just feel like I'm walking in defeat. You're walking in with addiction or whatever it might be. You've walked in wanting to see victory in your life over sin. Maybe you find yourself a slave to lust or to pornography. Maybe you find yourself consumed by the image of your body and it's driven you to an eating disorder. Maybe you find that you're just drawn to lying and deception, even in small ways that don't even matter, that have now made itself into issues that are much larger. And you worry if the truth were to come out, it would destroy your life and you just continue to spin webs of lies. 
Maybe you're battling with anger, feeling like you can't get a hold of it. You always find yourself with a short fuse that explodes and you don't know how to overcome it. And there may be a million other things that you've walked in here wanting to see victory in your life over sin. Or maybe you walked in here and you want to see real fruit in ministry around you. You want to see not just ministry in your own heart battling sin, but you want to see ministry around you. You want to be able to share the gospel. You want people who you love to come to know and trust and follow Jesus. You want to see your son or your mom or your cousin, uh, someone that you've been sharing your faith with for a long time that has just rejected who Jesus is, and you want to see real fruit in your ministry. Maybe you want to be emboldened, like in the book of Acts, to live boldly for Jesus. You want to see real fruit. You want to be a threat here in the kingdom of God. Or maybe you've walked in here and you just feel dead or numb in your relationship to God. Maybe you came in kind of limping at the end of this past year. And maybe just hoping, God, it's Easter. Right? It's, t- it's right around then, so can you just do something? You feel distant. My heart is so much more concerned with our political climate, with how my finances are looking with people's perspectives over masks or not. And God, honestly, I have just kind of pushed you away. And you just feel numb. Maybe you've come in and you've walked through a lot of pain this past year, suffering, and you're wondering where God can be. And he feels distant, feels like he doesn't care. And you want to find that relationship with him again, stirred, but he just feels away. Friends, if that is any of us, goodness, that might even be most or all of us in one of those categories, then I am convinced what we need in our lives is to pray for and to obey this command from Paul to be filled with the Spirit, to be able to see in power the fruit of his ministry through moral purity and victory over sin. Paul writes in Romans 8 that if we then by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body, we will live. Paul says, he doesn't say, hey, white knuckle it, get some software on your computer and you can overcome it. Paul says, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. John Owen, an old Puritan, just put it this way. He said, listen, you've got to either be killing sin or it will be killing you. Those are the options. There is no neutral ground. And friends, the hope and the reality is that by the ministry of the Spirit who now dwells in you, if you've trusted in Jesus, that same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you to give you victory over your flesh. And so by that Spirit, then you have the power to be able to put to death the sin in your life that feels like you can't see any victory. Or again, maybe you walked in and you've wanted to see fruit. Well, that it comes through being filled by the Spirit to be able to boldly proclaim then the name and the glory of Jesus Christ. We can't muster it on our own. The difference between Peter in the end of the Gospels and here in Acts 4 was the filling of the Spirit. And so maybe you're nervous to share your faith. Guys, listen, welcome to the club. That's all of us. That's Peter. That's the disciples. That's me. I've said it before, and I'll say it till I'm blue in the face. It's easier for me to get up here and preach than to go across the street and share my faith with my neighbor. It takes courage. But friends, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life, to fill you then with boldness to be able to go and proclaim the name of Jesus. That's what we need to see fruit in our lives. Or if you feel dead or numb in your relationship to God, you feel dry or you feel dull, then what we need then to pray for, to seek after, to obey that command, to be filled by the Spirit so our hearts would be stirred to worship and praise with the one who saved us. So many of us are trying to do it all with our own power. We're trying to say, okay, here's the list I need to grow closer to Jesus. Let me just check it off. Let me read my Bible, show up to church, go and do this. Those are all good things, but we're trying to do it with our organization and our checklist. We're trying to see on our own strength how we can go and share our faith with others. 
let me try to be like really cool. Like, let me try to be like a real cool, like, you know, not one of those like weird Christians, like in Footloose. I'm going to be like a cool Christian, and they're going to want to come to know Jesus because of how cool I am, because of how winsome I can be, because of the latest article I just read online or latest book that I just uh, went and listened to on whatever of apps there are to listen to books. And we think that we can go and do it on our own. Or we battle sin in our lives in our own power. And if you've done that, let me just, A, encourage you because you probably feel tired, discouraged, and defeated. And if you've been trying to do it on your own, then praise God he's let you feel that way. Because had you begin to do it on your own, you know what you would become? You'd become a Pharisee living in your own strength, boasting in your own self-righteousness. But God in his grace has allowed you to walk in here today and go, I can't do this on my own. The New Testament calls this living in the flesh, living by our own strength, our own muscles. And Paul is saying, don't do that. Live instead by the Spirit. And it's something that we all need. And the difference between living in the flesh and living in the Spirit, trying to do it on our own versus depending on the power of the Spirit of God to do it for us, is the difference between going out on a lake on a windy day and trying to row from one side of the lake to the other or going and setting up a sailboat and putting the wind, putting the sail up to catch the wind to take you across. That's the difference between the two. This is why we all need this, to be filled with the Spirit. So how do we do it? It's an odd question, isn't it? Because it's a passive verb, to be filled by the Spirit. And we're commanded to do it. Right? If I told you to leave here and go text your best friend, you go, okay, great, walk out of here, text. Not right now because you know, we're in church. But afterwards, go text your friend, got it. But if I told you to be texted by your best friend, it's like, well, what am I supposed to do to do that? How am I supposed to obey that command? Well, it's a similar thing here as Paul says, be filled by the Spirit. How are we supposed to do it? Is it something we experience Or is it something we do? And I would say the answer is yes. Again, to go back to the illustration of sailing, I think it's helpful because the word word in the Greek and the Hebrew, the original language of the Old and New Testaments, to name the Spirit is the same word as wind and breath. For both of them, it's the same idea. The wind blows where it wishes, Jesus says in John 3. So it is with the work and ministry of the Spirit. You go out on... The water on the lake or out to an ocean, you've got a sailboat. How are you supposed to sail? And listen, I'm not a sailor, so if anyone here is, you can correct me on all the things I'm about to say wrong after the sermon. Uh, So don't just interrupt now, but this is for the point of the illustration. I think I understand enough, an elementary understanding, to be able to explain how it is we sail. So when you go out there, you get a sailboat, uh, how do you then start going? I see somebody that was a, um, a submariner and in the Navy just smiling. at. He's like, oh, I'm just taking notes, ready to just destroy this guy after, uh, after the sermon with all the things he's about to say. I see you, Tim. I'm not going to name your name, but I see you. Um, how do you go out and sail? You go out, you go out on the boat, and you've got a sail. Now, what do you have to do? You've got to make sure you know the way in which you're going to go is by the wind pushing you along. There is going to be an external power that will propel you forward. You can't control it. You can't determine it. You've got to put your sails up and try to catch it. So you know the power to make you move comes from outside of yourself. It is something that you experience. But also, it is something that you do. Because if you go out on a sailboat and just keep the sails down, sit down, and go, all right, here we go. The wind's just going to blow us along. That wind's going to blow, and it's just going to go right on through. You've got to make sure you get the sails in the right position. You've got to make sure that you get the ropes nice and taut. I think that makes sense to me. You've got to make sure you've got your boat turned in the right direction. And when all of that happens, you do things to be able to experience the power that you can't muster up on your own. And friends, it's the exact same way for us that we then are to live, to be filled by the Spirit. For us to do anything in our lives of any kind of eternal significance, we cannot do it on our own. Jesus says in John 6, that the the works of the flesh are of no help at all. It's the spirit that gives life. We can't help at all. 
It's only the Spirit. It's an external power that comes to push us along, whether it's fighting sin in our life, sharing our faith, or stirring our affections to praise Jesus again. We can't muster that up on our own. It's an external force that has to come and fill the sails of our hearts. But there are things we do to make sure we are positioned to be able to catch that wind as it blows. And so what are those things? I mean, there's a million of them. I'll say generally... I would say generally, Paul says in Romans 8, the ones who walk according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Generally, turn your heart to the things of God. That's a million different applications there. What are the things that stir your affections for Jesus and fill your life with those things? Coming to church, gathering together with his people, singing praise. Singing praise is both a result and an aid to being filled with the Spirit. Coming together, gathering, singing his praise, looking for Jesus through his word, meditating on the truth and promises that God has given us. Goodness, drinking coffee, going around on a walk, looking at God's creation, seeing a beautiful sunset, and letting God's general revelation as well speak to our hearts and stir our hearts. Whatever it might be that stirs your heart for Jesus, set your mind on those things, the things that draw you closer to him. And what we begin to find is, typically we just kind of have two categories. What are the things that draw us to Jesus, the things that pull us away? Well, there's this whole middle category of neutral things. They aren't necessarily wrong, but they just distract us from who Jesus is. And so we begin then to eliminate the distraction in our life and fill our lives with the things that stir our hearts for him. So generally, set your hearts on things above and things that stir your affections for Jesus and do them. That's what you do to hoist your sails, to place your position, to place your heart in a position for when the winds blow, you then catch that. Specifically, two things I would say today, fight sin and walk in holiness. Again, that's part 1A and 1B of the same thing. There's a second thing coming in a second. I got to work on my numbering. Um, But fight sin slash walk in holiness, live in holiness. Sin grieves the spirit. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 30 and 31. It doesn't lessen the, uh, the, the beams of his love for you. Again, John Owen describing this said sin creates clouds in our life. The sun's still shining, but we no longer feel them. And so when we sin, we're walking in sin. We keep sin close to our hearts and in our lives. It causes us to become unaware of his presence and his power. So fight sin to be able to be filled with the Spirit. And secondly... And goodness, most practically, pray for it. Pray to be filled by the Spirit. Pray to experience that kind of boldness. When Peter and John left this little questioning and went back to their church at the end of Acts 4, you know what the church did? They didn't begin to draft up a statement on how they needed to enact the First Amendment in Jerusalem so they had the freedom of speech. The church pulled together and they said, God, give us boldness to proclaim your name because we know that you're sovereign over every government. It doesn't matter what laws or policies or what they do. It cannot stop you building your church. So make us bold as we go forward. And goodness, friends, as a church, maybe we've gotten too caught up with the culture and what we think we can do in politics, and we've walked away from praying with what our greatest weapon is, the boldness created by a filling of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the name of Jesus in a dark and dying world. This is what the church did here in Acts 4. Jesus, elsewhere in Luke chapter 11, verse 9 and 13, put it this way. We've heard this before, but listen to what he says, and in particular how it ends. Jesus says, I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. He says, what father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. All right, think about it. With your children, if your child came to you and says, Hey, uh, Mom, Dad, can I have um, a pillow? I'm really tired to go to bed. Yeah, sure. Here's a cactus. It's a pillow. Go, go lay down. Jesus said, No, you're not going to do that. 
Why? Because even every uh, father or mother on earth knows we want to give good gifts to our children. And then in times whenever our child comes asking us for things they may want, and we know, hey, this actually isn't good for you, then we say no to those things. But how then, he goes on and says, if then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give, you think he would say, give good gifts to those who ask him. That's not what Jesus says. He says, how much more then will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Friends, perhaps the greatest reason why we don't experience the power of the Spirit in moral purity, bold proclamation, and authentic praise is because we haven't asked. And you've walked in here and gone, God, I just want to experience the realness of a relationship with you. I want to experience power. I'm frustrated. I don't have that kind of grace and power in my life. Friends, maybe God has given you all that you've asked for. And today, maybe just the one thing that we walk away with is to leave here and say, Jesus, we want more of you through your spirit to fill us so that we would live differently in ways that we can't. So that then in our weakness, your strength then has a chance to shine. In our uneducated and untrainedness, your boldness and your gospel continues to go through. And we continue to want more and more of him. We'll close here. That's the whole point of being filled with the Spirit. It's not just to experience the Spirit. It's not even selfishly to have some kind of supernatural experience. This is what I see again. So many people run off as if there's this kind of uh, uh, running after the Spirit for our own personal experiences. And maybe you've walked into a church that uh, expresses gifts of the Holy Spirit, and you walk in, and all of the eyes are on the people who are doing whatever it is they're doing. Well, friends, let me tell you clearly what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is. It is not to turn attention to himself. It is to lift high the name of Jesus. This is what Jesus says in John 15, 26. He says, when the counselor comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, the one that I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, here's his ministry. He will testify about me. The Holy Spirit has come to shine a spotlight on the name of Jesus. So if you don't know what is something of the Spirit or not, here's an easy way to tell. Anything that distracts from the name and the glory of Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. Anything that draws our hearts to something that we might want to experience on our own and not to closer intimacy with Jesus, not to furthering, uh, further proclaiming his gospel in this world or to see victory in our lives over sin, to draw closer to him. Friends, that is not of the Spirit. The Spirit is here to shine a spotlight on Jesus. That's why in Acts 4, the story of Acts 4 isn't about the Holy Spirit. It's about Jesus. It's the name of Jesus. He's the one who has come and healed. He is the one who is lifted high. It is his gospel that is proclaimed. And so in this, we walk out praying, God, will we be filled with your spirit, not just to experience this stuff, but to know Jesus and to make him known. That's the motivation for this. And may we obey this command from Paul to not be drunk with too much wine, but to be being filled by the spirit. As we go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that Jesus has commanded, let us not forget and to remember that he is with us always. And we are to come to him to be filled by him over and over and over again. There is never an end to this filling. We are to be filled with the fullness of God. Friends, there's no end to the fullness of God. So may we seek and pray to see just that as we see the name of Jesus lifted high in our lives and through this church. Let's pray.